As I start, I want to tell you about a, uh, about a boy that, that uh, had a different perspective on pain. His name is Isaac Brown, and uh, when he was born, he, had a, he uh, was born with a genetic uh, insensitivity to pain. In fact, he doesn't experience pain at all. And, uh, and while that may sound like something that we would all want to have, in, in his case, it actually was, was somewhat harmful. Isaac Brown uh, was uh, uh, born with this, uh, with this rare disease, and uh, the problem is he doesn't know when he's hurt himself. And uh, in fact, his parents were interviewed in, in an article, and they said that, uh, that even when he fell on the playground, he didn't know that he had broke his pelvis. And so he just, he didn't have any, any feeling at all when it came to, to pain. And so uh, his, his parents are, are trying to help him, uh, even as he learns not to put his hand in uh, scalding hot coffee or to place his hand on a hot stove, which he's also done that as well. And again, while the rest of the world would celebrate having a day like that uh, without pain, uh, it's been a challenge for him. And it's a reminder to us that there is at times reasons that we can see for the pain for the suffering that, that we go through. We may not always understand exactly uh, why uh, we endure a particular season, but as we look to Scripture, we can see that even, even the heroes of our faith, they have, they have themselves endured uh, pain and suffering. In fact, Peter, who we have been looking at in recent days, was an example of one who, who understood the realities of pain. In fact, even in his case, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, some of his suffering was related uh, to his faith and his call to follow Christ. He has a word for us today about suffering, and I invite your attention back to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to look at, at chapter 1 and pick back up where we left off last week. We want to remember that the book of 1 Peter was written to believers in Asia Minor. It was a letter that was, that was sent to, uh, to, to a number of different churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. But if you remember, they were, they were addressed as exiles, as sojourners, as strangers that were, they were traveling through because Peter was helping them to understand that this is not all that there was, that God had a plan beyond uh, what was taking place in this life. And so for us as Christians, for us to remember that, that we too have a new identity, that we have a, a new citizenship in heaven. And so we also can approach the book of 1 Peter with the reminder that we are not home yet. We went through verse three last week, but I'd like to, to pick back up. In fact, if you look at verses three to 12, uh, in the original, they are actually one long run-on sentence, verses three to 12. And so, so if you can imagine having a sentence that long, that's what, that's what Peter was doing here. And I, I think it was done to help keep the theme intact to see that, that from three, verse three, all the way to verse 12, he's writing about the theme of suffering. And he's, he's approaching it from some different angles in this, which we will see as we work our way through. And I'd like for us to begin by, by, uh, by picking back up in verse three and, and beginning by uh, reading through verse nine, and then we'll pick up the last three verses near the end. Words of Peter say this, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. "'Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power 
through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter has some very rich thoughts that he gives to these early believers. And I, I think for us as well to, to be able to hang on to the words found in 1 Peter chapter 1. I've structured the message today with, with application points. And so as we work through the outline, we'll really be working through points of application as well. The first one is this, hold on to promises in the midst of suffering. We can see that there are promises right here embedded in the verses that we just read. Uh, particularly if you look at verses three through five, you can see that there are a couple of promises here to recall when you are suffering. One of them is this, God guards us in this time of exile. Thinking about our journey through this life, thinking about what it is that we experience as exiles in this world, we know that God is active we see that he, is, he by his spirit, is, is present with us and he guards us during this time. In fact, the word that's used here in verse 5, to guard, means to keep watch over and to know that God watches over us. Even the psalmist reflects upon the ways in which God watches over our coming and our going. And for us to be reminded that we, regardless of what it is that we are going through, we are not alone. In fact, I re recall earlier in this week visiting someone who was very, very sick, uh, isolated, in fact, in, a, in an ICU unit at the hospital, uh, clearly very much by herself. But that was one of the, the reminders that I wanted to encourage her with is that, 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 that she was not all alone, that, that God indeed is there with her and that she would sense his presence and that that would provide for her a sense of, of peace, even in the midst of, of some, some truly difficult days that she's experiencing. So when we look at verse five and we see that it says that, that we are guarded, it doesn't mean that we avoid suffering in this world, but it means that God keeps us by his power. In fact, if you continue looking at that little phrase, it says it's God's power through faith. And so, so in many ways, what he's guarding is the very faith that we have ourselves. Can you imagine going through a time of difficulty and, 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 and wavering in that faith, wavering in that, in, that, in that assurance of the Lord? And so that's part of what God sustains by his power is to strengthen our faith to remind us that we are not alone, that he is there and that he is providing strength to endure. In fact, a very similar concept is, is found in the book of Philippians chapter four. Uh, same same, uh, uh, same uh, understanding of being guarded by the Lord. It says in, in uh, Philippians chapter four, verse seven, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And here, this, this word guard is, is really the, the same one that would have been, been used to think about, a, about, about a, a soldier that is standing guard, defending a city, and to know that, that this is the way in which God looks over his own, that he guards us even, even with his peace that, uh, that allows us to stand firm, not to be overwhelmed by the circumstances that we are going through, but instead to be reminded that God is still active in our lives, even in our suffering. And so that's, that's one promise, a promise that God guards us in this time of exile. And maybe in a time of suffering, we can look and, and, and ask him and, and seek to understand, Lord, how are you guarding me? How are you here with me? What is it that you are providing as I walk through this time? And as we ask those questions, I believe that, that by faith we will see we will see that, that indeed he is present with us. But there's another promise in these verses, and that is that God provides something beyond this exile. And so here we look back to verse four, and we see a description of an eternal inheritance. Notice what it says, an inheritance that is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading meaning it will, not, it will not be diminished, it won't pass away. It is an inheritance that is eternal, and it says that it is kept in heaven for you. Again, as we think about the theme of exiles, of being exiles, we know that, that we long for a, a country, we long for that promised land, that place in which Jesus himself said to the disciples that he would, he would go and prepare a place for them. Prepare a place for us to know that, that, that he is actively preparing a destination beyond this world. And in that, we can remi be reminded of the future inheritance. And that may serve as a source of encouragement, a source of strength to know that what we are experiencing here or what we possess here is not all that God has in store. He has something beyond this world, and it allows us to look forward to eternity to have the hope of heaven, and to even live this life in light of eternity. Now, that's a, that's a new perspective, that when we became followers of Christ, we were able to, to, to have an understanding beyond the, the temporal nature of this world that allows us then to live and to think and to make decisions, to have values and priorities that are in light of eternity. So we see here a couple of promises that God guards us in a time of exile, that God provides something beyond this exile. Now, these are just a couple of promises. In fact, you could go through God's word and, and maybe even as you read God's word systematically, you may, you may find promises that you wanna jot down, maybe, maybe notate them in a journal and, 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 and hold on to them to keep them for a time in which you want to reflect upon a promise of God. In fact, earlier, in the year, I, I shared a message uh, on the theme of depression. And, and in that, I was telling you about, about the promises of God that we can hold on to. And that, that even there was a, a man by the name of Samuel Clark that, that many, many years ago put together a little, a little book that he titled Precious Bible Promises. And I know that's not the only one that's out there. There's, there's, numbers, uh, there's a number of, of resources like this where, where the promises of God that are found in Scripture have been put together. Sometimes they're categorized, where you're able to go back 
and be reminded of what He has said that He will provide for us because God is, a, is, is one who keeps His word. He's one who keeps His promises. And so, so we can read these promises with, with assurance, knowing that, that, they are, that they are indeed true. Let me share just three of them with you. One is from Psalm 147, verse 3. It says, He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. It's a reminder, yet again, of God's activity, even in the midst of a time that's, that's very difficult. In fact, the psalmist said, uh, a time in which one's heart is even broken to know that he's there as a healer, one who provides what is needed. In Psalm 94, he writes in verse 19, when I am filled with cares, your comfort brings me joy. Again, just this, this idea that we can experience his comfort, we can experience his care, that it even can bring us joy in the midst of suffering. And another one, of course, is repeated in a number of different verses, but one example is Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or abandon you. Some versions say, I will never leave you or forsake you. And that, that's one, again, that we need to have as a reminder, because we know that we also have an adversary that wages war against the soul and whispers things into our ears that, that are not true. And when that happens, it's, it's, it's best to combat the lies and to combat the errors with what? The truth, with Scripture, with the promises of God, to, 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 to know that it's, it's, it's something that even encourages and stimulates our faith. Faith comes by hearing hearing the word of God. And so to have these, these promises from God's word tucked away hang, to hang on to. Now, I've given you three here. We looked at two from the uh, book of 1 Peter. But again, we could spend all day, couldn't we? Going, going through and just finding promise after promise after promise that, re, that relate to our life here, walking with the Lord. So that's the first point this morning, to hold on to the promises that we've been given in the midst of suffering. But secondly, we're going to see in verses 6 through 9 that we are also to keep the right perspective of suffering. We live in a world that is both beautiful and broken. In fact, we could stop and pause and just think about the beauty of God's creation, or we could stop and we could pause about the brokenness that has happened since, since the fall, right? And, and how creation, all of creation, has been affected by the fall. And so we think, we think of this world and know that it is both beautiful and broken. We know that in this life, we experience both joy and sorrow. Now on Friday in the, in the fellowship news when we sent it out, I, I asked you to think about a couple of questions. And uh, the questions were, were these. Is it possible that we can experience a day that is both good and bad? Typically, we evaluate days as it was a good day or it was a bad day. But have you had days that were filled with both? Let me ask you, what about a season? Can you have a season that you go through that contains both suffering and joy at the same time? Again, it's a little counterintuitive. We always uh, tend to think that one may, may have precedent over the other, but both can be present. In fact, as I, as I walk with families in the midst of, of, of grief and losing a loved one, as I did earlier in the week, there, there, are, there are times in which there is the, the true sadness and the true sorrow, the true separation that they are experiencing, 
And yet, at the same time, what else can they, can they experience? They can experience gratitude for a life well lived. The, the impact that their loved one had upon them, the blessing that it was to know them, the hope that they have that their loved one is in the Lord's presence, in his arms. And so again, it's just this idea that there's both a tension of, yes, there is true, real grief, there is suffering, and yet there's also joy, there's also gratitude. And so, so we're talking about, I think, something that is, that is a uniquely Christian experience, and that is a perspective of joy in the midst of pain. And that may be a reminder that some of us may need today or may need this week, that, that even in the midst of suffering and difficulty, we can pursue joy. That's the theme of verses six through nine. Again, we're looking at one long sentence, and over and over again, we see uh, the, the idea of trials and grief and suffering mentioned, but we also see in verse six, the word rejoice, you rejoice. And then later in the verse, it says, as you suffer various trials. Again, we see both present there. Verse eight, you rejoice with, and, and look at the way the rejoicing is, is described, inexpressible and glorious joy. I mean, it's, this is like a, a, a tremendous amount Lots of, of rejoicing even in the midst of the suffering. So we see that as we live as exiles, we, we can understand and know that there will be difficulty. There will be trials. And we are not to be shocked or surprised when they come upon us. Now, now some of these difficulties are, are the same kinds of trials that are experienced throughout this world. Everybody experiences suffering to some degree. Everyone will experience um, sickness. Everyone will experience different forms of hardship and difficulties and, and, uh, and suffering, sorrow. All of, all of those experiences are common to all people. But there are some types of suffering that are unique to followers of Christ. And that's when we suffer for our faith. That's when we are mocked or we are persecuted or we are, uh, or we are um, misunderstood or, 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 or our sentiments are, are conveyed in a way to others that, uh, or by others that are, that are not accurate. Um, all of these types of difficulties are, are components of, of walking with the Lord. As we saw last week, we are exiles, which means we are outsiders. And the, the perspectives, the values of the world will not uh, many times align with what we hold to. And in those times, we can indeed experience that type of suffering. To live for Christ means that our lives don't reflect the changing values of a changing culture. And uh, I think we've seen that uh, heightened in the last few years, that, that, the, that the culture is moving at a, at a very rapid pace. And there's, there's lots of discussions and lots of, of, uh, uh, of, of topics that we may not have ever dreamed we would be, we would be talking of or thinking of. We, we considered some of this uh, last week. And, and that's because there is a change. Some would call what we're, what we're recognizing as a moral revolution. And I've shared this with you before, and I don't know that it's original with Al Mohler, but, but, uh, but he and, and possibly others have said that there are three stages of a moral revolution. Here's what they are. 
Number one, what was condemned is now celebrated. What was celebrated is now condemned. But here's the third part, and maybe some of you are feeling this. Those refusing to celebrate are condemned. And you can fill in the blank with, with, with a lot of different examples of this, but, but we see that when the values of a culture shift, and then when we see that there is an expectation of conformity, and that those who don't conform, or in this case, those who don't celebrate the changes that are taking place, they themselves can face condemnation. It reminds me of the kind of suffering that we as Christians uh, are, are called to live through because this is, this is a suffering that, that in fact helps us see that yes, we are different from, from this world, that what we hold to is very different from the values and in many cases, even the morals of the culture in which we live. Now, responding to all of this in joy may seem counterintuitive. And we are reminded though that joy is not rooted in circumstances. Our joy is not rooted in the things of this world. Not circumstances, not possessions, not, not finances, not relationships. All of those things change and so do the emotions that are connected with them. And that's oftentimes why we can experience a roller coaster of emotions in this lifetime because there's a lot of change that happens regarding these circumstances. But if we can be rooted to something that doesn't change, we can find this joy rooted outside of the world. We can find our joy rooted in our security in Jesus Christ. As we think about the salvation, the gift of eternal life that has been given to us, as we think earlier about what we read about the inheritance that we will one day receive when we are with the Lord. All of these things can, can indeed give us joy, even as other things change, these remain steady. Juan Sanchez writes, this hope is an unshakable foundation for our joy and for our perseverance. If our joy is found in knowing whose we are and where we are heading, then our joy will always be great because the grounds of our joy never shift. I think he's exactly right. A good word of, of, of commentary on the, the verses that we've been reading. And yet even though we, we have joy, there is a recognition that suffering indeed is hard. We don't gloss over the, the, that aspect of suffering to know that it is painful. It is challenging. In fact, if you look again at the end of verse six, it says, you suffer grief in various trials. So we don't come together today to downplay the suffering. In fact, I think at times as, as Christians, we, we, we may be tempted to downplay the suffering. We may be tempted to gloss over that. And in fact, uh, the suffering is real. And Christians are to, to grieve they are to work through processes of grief as we, uh, as we uh, endured uh, challenging times. In fact, we spent uh, a, a considerable amount of time thinking about lament. Uh, we've done this a, a couple of times. One of them was, was the time in which we went through the book of Lamentations. Do you remember that series? 
Yeah, I was glad to finish that one. I mean, it's like every Sunday, wow, this is hard. This is rough, right? But, uh, but we had to do that. We had to think of it because, because God's word gives us the tools for lamenting. And lamenting is not just glossing over something. It's, it's experiencing the suffering. It's walking through it, and yet walking through it with a sense of trust. In fact, Mark Vrogop says it this way. He says, lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And as we work through the book of Psalms, what do we see? We see that there's a good number of them that are psalms of lament. They are given to us to help us walk through seasons of difficulty, times of suffering, and to be able to do so uh, with with honesty before the Lord, with questions, with concern raised. And yet at the same time, they are questions that ultimately lead us to deeper trust in him. So again, we recognize the reality of suffering while also rooting our joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Next, we see that trials come in various forms. We would recognize that not not all suffering is the same. In fact, if you uh, look at the end of verse six again, it says not only that you suffer, you suffer grief, but you do so in various trials, meaning that, that it can come in a lot of different ways. Now, we know that that sickness and sorrow and suffering are all things that are common uh, to to everyone, Uh, and they can come in different intensities, and sometimes they can come at the same time. And some of you have have been through that, where it just seems like it's one thing after another that just compound. Over the last few weeks, we've had uh, family members in our church, church family members that that have lost loved ones. We've had some that have, that have received difficult diagnoses, some that have gone through, uh, through surgeries, operations, uh, some that are, that are even right now in the midst of, of recovery or re- rehabilitation and, and just working through the, the, the physical challenges of all of these things. Others have, have found out that they've, that they've lost their job or that, that there's been some unexpected uh, issues related to, to finances. All of these reasons can... Uh, or all of these things can be reasons to cause pain and, disp- and distress. They are not a result of one's spiritual maturity. They are common to all of us. No believer is exempt from suffering. In fact, even here, as we read the book of 1 Peter, we're told not only to expect it, but to expect it in various trials. And so when they come, we can identify them. We are not surprised or shocked. Uh, we, we, we recognize that, that they are painful, that we want to, to work through the, the, the reality of that pain, but to do so in a way that continues to cast our eyes to the Lord. We know also that some have greater pain than others. We don't all suffer equally. And so I think that's, that's a helpful reminder, even as we, as we attempt to minister and care for one another, uh, to know that, 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 yes, we can relate to some degree, but we can't always relate completely to what someone else is going through. These are trials that come in various forms. But we also see here in 1 Peter chapter 1 that there's another element, and that is that trials grow our faith. 
And this is a, a principle that we can find in, in other parts of Scripture, but it's certainly clear here in, in, chap, in chapter 1, verse 7, is it, is it relates suffering to, to being like, uh, like a, a, a crucible that is being heated up for the refining of precious metal. Listen to how he describes it again. So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable, is refined by fire, that it may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so it's as if that, that Peter's giving us just a, a, a brief illustration here that, that this trial, that this suffering is like the, like the, the, the fires of the, of the blacksmith or the goldsmith being heated up and that the, that the, that the ore may be, may be placed in a crucible. And as the, as the temperature increases, what happens? That the, that the precious metal begins to separate from, from, the, from, the, from the rock that, that, uh, that it was at one time in. And as the, as the metal uh, is, is heated and as it melts out of the, of the rock, the, uh, the goldsmith continues to, 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 to take off that which is, is, the, is the precious metal, to remove the impurities and to, to continue that process. In fact, uh, some even say that as the impurities uh, rise and they're skimmed off, that, the, that the, the temperatures will go even hotter to remove even more impurities. And so that's the, that's the picture here that Peter is giving uh, followers of Christ to know that, yes, that, that heat is there, but it will skim off. It will take away some of those impurities in our lives, those things which seek to lead us down a broad path, those things which really in, in reality seek to harm us, sins and temptations that, 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 that will really seek to, to destroy us, all of these things to be, to be taken away. Now, again, it's talking about a refiner's fire, not a, not a forest fire that just destroys indiscriminately. It's not an incinerator which consumes completely. A refiner's fire is one that is measured, that is controlled, and that is, is what he is using as an illustration for the times of suffering. And maybe, maybe you can look back in your own life and you can see that those times in which you, you, you grew in your faith, or that you grew in your understanding of, of who God is and, and how, he, how he is at work. Maybe in, in times you can, you can see that that's where your spiritual growth has happened. doesn't mean that we can't grow spiritually when everything is going well, but if we, if we get real honest, we would probably see that it was in the trials and the suffering that our faith grew the most. In fact, Malcolm Muggridge said it this way, he said, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have ever learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. So that's what he's saying. It's, he's learned a lot in the school of affliction. And in times, this is also part of the purpose behind the pain a season of growth, a time in which we learn to trust God, to see his mercies the clearest. C.S. Lewis gave the, the, famous, the statement that is now very famous. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And maybe it's been in your pain that you have heard 
that you have seen, that you have clung to the promises that he's given. And again, it's all in the context of what verse 7 refers to as the proven character of your faith, the proof of your faith. The idea here is that anyone can make a claim of faith, but when faith is costly, when it's hard, when it's inconvenient, or when it's socially or culturally unacceptable, that is a proven faith. Now you might say proven to who? Well, it's a faith that could be proven to others, but who else? Who else might, might recognize that proof of one's faith? Could you see how it could, it, could really, it could really impact you on a personal level? That as you go through this and you see that your faith is, 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 is secure, it's strong, it's firm, it's, it's resolute, that it even is a, a, a way of communicating to yourself the reality that your faith indeed is real. Let's keep reading. Let's pick back up in verses uh, 10 through 12. Again, believe it or not, this was all one long sentence uh, in the original, but he's, he's wanting all of this to, to, uh, to be kept together. So let's read it that way. Beginning back in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. Again, talking about, about the prophets of the Old Testament. Verse 11. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. That's as if he's reflecting for a moment as he wraps up this portion of this, uh, of this passage. He's taking, time, taking a time to reflect back. He's thinking about the Old Testament prophets. The prophets of that time, they were doing what? They were looking forward to a future promise. And it was the Spirit of God that was giving them the understanding that a Messiah would be sent, a Christ would be sent. And they were looking forward to that day. They were investigating. They were, they were trying to better understand what this would look like for God's plan of redemption to be fulfilled. They spoke of a coming Messiah, and even the book of Isaiah gives quite a bit of detail. If you think about Isaiah 53, the rejection, the oppression of the Messiah, the judgment, all of that leading up to the death is given in great detail about what was to come. Verse 11 here in 1 Peter 10 says that the prophets wanted to know. They wanted to know about the time and the circumstances regarding the sufferings of the Messiah or the Christ. Peter is saying, look what the prophets longed to understand. Look at what the prophets were, were, were wanting to know more about. These are the things that, that you now have had declared. Look at verse, the middle of verse 12. These things have now been announced to you. So just think about it. Peter is reminding these suffering and hurting believers that they were living in the day 
that the Old Testament prophets longed to see. But you may have noticed there was another group mentioned in verses 10 to 12. Look at the end of verse 12. It says, angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. It's almost like he gives that as a side note. The prophets wanted to see it, and by the way, the angels would like to as well. Now, of course, we know that that the angels can observe God's unfolding rescue plan. We're told even in Luke chapter 15 that, that when one person comes to faith in Christ, that there is rejoicing in heaven, rejoicing in God's presence, but they themselves have not experienced God's salvation. Think about that. Angels haven't personally received and responded to uh, God's grace in this way. They don't know what it's like to be rescued from sin, to experience the relief of knowing God's forgiveness firsthand, to know that the, the, the blessing of a brand new life in Christ. You see, the prophets long for this day, and the angels, they can see it, but they don't fully experience it. So let me ask you, church family, who does? Who does get to see it firsthand? Who does get to experience this? Well, it's us, the body of Christ. We have been been given a brand new life in him. The old things have been buried. The old things have been been, uh, set aside and we have instead been given a new life. And in the midst of that, we've been given promises like his presence will guard us in the midst of trials that we can experience joy in the midst of pain, that we can long for the promised inheritance that is waiting in our homeland. All of these are things that that we ourselves today can reflect on and understand that others would have loved to have had the opportunity to know. But now we are pilgrims, pilgrims on a journey And we're looking to our Savior, a Savior who, by the way, himself understood suffering. He understood it. And so this morning, as we reflect on our suffering and our pain, I'd like for us to also take a moment to think about his. In fact, it seems quite appropriate as we move to a time here where we we will receive the Lord's Supper together, that we do reflect upon his pain and his suffering, that Jesus, being the Lamb of God and the living God, gave himself for us. He laid down his life for us. He took the punishment that we deserved, and he did so by going to the cross and dying for our sins. So this morning, I invite you, as forgiven sinners, to come to the table to reflect upon the price that was paid. We're gonna, in just a moment, receive the bread and we're gonna receive the cup together. Each of these being special reminders of what the Lord has done. In fact, they are pictures for us of of the gospel. We look to the the bread and we're reminded of of the earthly life of Jesus. We're reminded of the the fact that, that, that he came fully human while also fully God. A very special way to, to represent humanity before God. 
And so we think of the bread, we think also of the cup because we know that he indeed suffered, that he, he really, really did experience pain. Uh, and, and he did so when he, when he was beaten, when he was, when he was nailed to the cross, there was, there was the reality of, of his pain. And we know that in other parts of scripture that it tells us that, that it, is, it, is with, it is by the, the remission it, excuse me, it is, it, is by, it is through the shedding of blood that we, that we can experience the forgiveness of sins and pointing back to the sacrificial time of the Old Testament. And yet, in fact, it was, it was fulfilled in Christ that he did shed his blood for the remission of sin. And so we think of the body, we think also of his blood. We invite you to participate this morning. You, you don't have to be a, a member of our church family, but we do ask that, that you profess Jesus as Savior, that you're able to understand the reality of, 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 of what the, the significance is of the Lord's table, of what these elements represent, so that we can come together and remember. And so let's take some time. And I invite you to, to have a, a time of prayer. And, and as you go before the Lord and pray, uh, it's a time of, of gratitude and thanksgiving for what he's done. But it may also be a time of, of confession, a time of repentance as we, as we go before the Lord in a serious manner, realizing that, uh, that what we uh, partake of here is indeed a, a, uh, a, a time that, that, is, uh, that is devoted to serious thinking and contemplation and reflection. So let's bow together. I invite you to go ahead and begin praying to the Lord. And then just in a moment, I'll close this in prayer.